Hi, my name is Brooke Zeller. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 9, 13 through 18. One day, as I was observing how wisdom fares on this earth, I saw something that made me sit up and take notice. There was a small town with only a few people in it. A strong king came and mounted an attack, building trenches and attacking posts around it. There was a poor but wise man in that town whose wisdom saved the town, but he was promptly forgotten. He was, an only, he was only a poor man after all. All the same, I still say that wisdom is better than muscle, even though the wise poor man was treated with contempt and soon forgotten. The quiet words of the wise are more effective than the ranting of a king of fools. Wisdom is better than warheads, but one hothead can ruin the good earth. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Nikki Howard, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Matt. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew 7, 24 through 27 in the ESV. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and open our eyes that we would see Jesus. Come and open our ears that we would hear your word to us. And come and open our hearts that we would love you and serve you and follow you all the days of our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in this series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling it Finding Joy because sometimes it's hard work to find joy in life under the sun. And so one of the things Ecclesiastes does is it confronts our overly optimistic um, outlook and an empty sort of optimism, just the Lego movie kind of everything is awesome kind of optimism. And it challenges it and it says, are you sure? 
But Ecclesiastes also offers us something redemptive to do with our cynicism. It doesn't just want to leave us being cynical. It, it challenges us to say, look, if you pull on the thread and unravel it, you're going to find something beyond it. Sort of like that scene in the movie The Truman Show where uh, Jim Carrey's character rows his boat to the edge of the lake and he discovers he's been living in a TV set his whole life. And, and discovers maybe there's something beyond this. That's what Ecclesiastes invites us to consider. Could there be something beyond life under the sun? At the same time, it sends us back to this life and says, look, there are limitations to the things under the sun. There are limitations to pleasure and to work and to drink and eat, eat food and all this. There's limitations to it. And once you accept its limitations, you can then appreciate its gifts. Accept the limitations of a thing, and you can begin to appreciate the gifts of a thing. If you refuse to accept its limitations, you'll never be able to appreciate its gifts. So the question then is, well, well great, that sounds lovely, but how? How do I do this? And Ecclesiastes is, of course, wisdom literature. It's that part of our Bible that doesn't give us rules. It's not law. It's not uh, the, the writings of, uh, with poetry. It's the writings that come in the form of wisdom. And wisdom is, is, is meant to help us wrestle and to help us reflect. And so this morning, we're going to turn our attention to wisdom itself, the obscurity of wisdom. How do we find it? Who do we ask? Why don't we ask? What keeps us from looking for wisdom? We're really going to kind of walk through this text with three questions in mind. What keeps us from asking whom do we ask, and what does wisdom actually look like to God? So our text again is Ecclesiastes 9. If you've got your Bibles or your phones or whatever, turn with me to verse 13, and let's hear this little parable that the teacher gives. Verse 13, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege work against it. But there was found in the city a poor, wise man. Now, if you're into underlining or highlighting, those are two important adjectives, poor and wise. The reason is this teacher, Solomon, quote unquote, is setting up the story, setting up this short little parable. And he says, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered the poor man. So here's again, poor and wise. The wisdom helped him deliver the city, but him being, his being poor caused everyone to forget him. The idea here is that sometimes a person can be wise and yet not a success in the world's eyes. Now, it's curious because we think about this in our day and we're like, okay, you know, surely the Bible, the gospel challenges our Americanized tendency to see that the one who's wise is also the one who's wealthy. You know, thank you, Ben Franklin. Early to bed, early to rise makes a person healthy, wealthy and wise, because obviously all three of those things go together if you just figured out the formula, right? And Solomon it apparently was no different in the ancient times. Because they thought, look, the person who's wealthy must be the person who's wise, and the person who's poor must be a person who's a fool. Now, Proverbs is full of examples of when that is true, who a person by his folly leads him to laziness and therefore is unprepared for the winter. Remember that whole story in Proverbs? There are times when that's true, but there are times when that's not true. 
And so this story that the teacher is setting up, he's saying, look, he had enough wisdom to deliver the city, but enough poverty to make people forget him. No one remembered that poor man, but I say that wisdom is better than might, and the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. But the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Man, that's incredible to reflect on. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The first thing we want to say about this passage is when we're asking why are we un- unwilling to ask or what keeps us from wisdom, the first thing we want to say is you must be willing to ask. Pretty simple. You must be willing to ask. You've got to be willing to look for And what keeps us from asking? Sometimes it's pride, isn't it? Sometimes it's the sense of like, well, I, I already know. I've been doing this 30 years. And, and here's the, the trap, okay? I'm 37, and I'm, I can see what happens to you as you get on in, in years, is you start to sort of think that you've actually got it figured out. And this is, I mean this respectfully, but sometimes what happens is people get into their 60s, and the same wisdom that they had in their 30s is encrusted now into their 60s. They've stopped learning. They've stopped questioning. They've stopped asking. They've stopped saying, I don't know. Is there more about this? There's something happens to us where we kind of stop. We slow down our learning process. And we say, no, you know what? I used to be inquisitive. I used to want to know. Now it's just, I kind of know, okay? I figured this out. I've got it. So this isn't just a word to young people to keep asking. It's a word to all of us in every season. Have you stopped growing? Have you stopped asking? Have you said, I don't need to ask anymore. I don't need to read anymore. Everything I learned about life, I learned in my 30s, and now I've got it. And I want to challenge you to keep asking. You have to be willing to ask. But sometimes it's not pride. Sometimes what keeps us from asking is a false expectation of ourselves that we sort of think, shouldn't I know by now? Shouldn't I have figured out how to raise children by now? Shouldn't I have figured out how to have friendships by now? Shouldn't I have figured out church by now? Shouldn't I have figured out faith by now? I'm a Christian. Do you know, when you talk to someone who's wise and and, uh, advanced in years, you realize that true wisdom actually results in greater and greater humility, where people say, you know, I know I'm supposed to figure, but there's so much I don't have figured out. In fact, the only thing I've figured out is that I don't have a lot of things figured out. And so you've, they're free from the false expectation that says, I should know better. I should know by now. I shouldn't have to ask anymore. And I honestly, you know, I think one of the symptoms of our age, our day, our culture, where we're afraid of asking and we sort of expect, expect that we should know everything, is that instead of asking people, we ask Siri. We ask the Google. So I don't know, I don't know how I should, Google, how do you invest? What's the best way to buy a house? When do you, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, you have nobody around you to turn to, so you Google it. Do you know, the Proverbs tell us that he or she who walks with the wise becomes wise. The companionship of wisdom is about who you surround yourself with, not who you turn to in moments of crisis. In fact, if you only wait for the moments of crisis to say, okay, I'm willing now, I'm willing to ask, 
you might find that you actually don't have anyone to ask. And that's why you turn to the Google. Because <laughs> you don't know who to ask now. But Proverbs says, keep a life where you're walking. You're keeping company with wise people. And then when those certain strategic moments come, you're like, I, I'm gonna, I know where to turn. I, I've been walking with the wise. This is one of the reason we, reasons we do meal groups here at New Life Downtown is because we're trying to facilitate walking with one another through every season of life. Some of the most beautiful meal groups uh, uh, that we have here at the church are the ones where it truly is intergenerational and the flow of wisdom actually goes back and forth. I'm thinking of, of Kurt and Debbie Carber. I'm thinking about their, their meal group where there's young people and older people and, and they're learning from one another. They're saying, you tell me, what, what, what am I missing here? What if I, I've spent 30, I, I've lived longer than you, but I've lived longer in this vein. I don't know much about what it's like to be in this situation. Tell me about that. And, and the others are saying, you know what? We're young. We have no clue how to do real life. Tell us how you plan. Tell us how and I think of Jim and Martha Cole's meal group where they've, they've got like 60 people or whatever. I mean, who knows how many? It grows every, every week. I'm not even going to say when you meet. <laughs> got to keep it secret. It's because they've stumbled upon an intergenerational in, where people are learning from one another. Look for those intersections. Look for those places where you can walk with the wise and be willing to learn. Surround yourself. Okay, but the next question is, but whom? Whom do we ask? Because we can't just turn to everybody. If, if one error is to ask no one, then the opposite error is to ask everyone, right? This is what we call crowdsourcing wisdom, where you're like, you know, hey, guys, debating a serious business decision. What should I do? What would you do if you were me, Facebook? Let's get everybody to weigh in on this. 60 comments later, you're even more confused than ever. Because crowdsourcing wisdom doesn't always work. And so if one error is like, I'm going to ask nobody, the other error is, I'm just going to ask everybody. I'm just going to put it out there on Facebook. Look, it's one thing if you're asking for recommendations about a great burger joint, whatever. You know, it's another thing when you're saying, I actually need wisdom, and I don't know who to turn to. So I'll just ask everybody. It's, recently, I was chatting with, I taught at a, at a class, and, and, and uh, I was chatting with a young lady who came up afterwards, and she was in her early 20s, and I said, well, what are you going to do after life? You've been here for a couple of years. There, there's some decisions around the corner for you, potentially. And she goes, you know, I, I don't know, because every idea I run by my friends, they're so supportive of it. I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, yeah, like if I say, I think I should go to college now, they're like, awesome. And if I say, I think I'm just going to hang around the church and volunteer for six more years, they're like, totally amazing. That's what you should do, you know? And if I say, I think I'm going to sell everything I have and, and join YWAM and go to Africa, they're like, absolutely, that's the will of God for you. And she's like, I don't know, because they're just so supportive. Everything I say, they're like, mm-hmm, that's the best. And it's just, you know, I was just waiting to see. And then she goes, maybe I should talk to more than just my friends. I said, you know, that's not a bad idea. There's a great story in 1 Kings about the son of Solomon. His name is Rehoboam. And Solomon's son, I'll just kind of summarize this story for you. It's found in 1 Kings 12, verse 1 through 11. I'll read sections of it. But Rehoboam has become king. He's Solomon's son. And he goes out to meet the people. 
And hidden among the assembly of the people is a military exile named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam was living in Egypt, exiled, and he snuck back in and he's hiding in the crowd. And the people say to their new king, Rehoboam, they said in verse 4, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said, he said to them, go away for three days and then come again to me. This is the first smart decision he's making. Don't make difficult decisions under pressure. Now, by the way, salespeople know the reverse of this is true. If they can get you to make a difficult decision quickly, anyway. So he goes away. Ah, let me think about this. And verse 6, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old man who had stood before Solomon his father, the old men, excuse me, who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer these people? So he turns to the counselors, the advisors, who had advised his dad. Now, who was his dad? The guy who was called the wisest man who ever lived. So how wise do you think these old men were? Pretty wise. If they were advising the wisest man who ever lived... And he goes to them and says, what, what should I do? And he says, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Magnificent leadership advice. Be kind to them. Be their servant. And, and then it says, but he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. He's like, eh, that's lame. My dudes! What should I do, man? And they're like, dude, that advice is garbage. Here's what you need to do. And verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him said to him, thus shall you speak to, the, to this people who said to you, blah, blah, blah. Say to them, my little finger is thicker than your father's thighs. <laughs> A very strange idiomatic expression. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to the yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I'll discipline you with scorpions. Basically, you ain't seen nothing yet. Don't you whine to me. And Rehoboam follows the advice of his younger peers. And as a result, the kingdom splits. Jeroboam, that military exile, takes a portion of the nation and leads it on his own. He takes the north. Ten tribes to the north, and Rehoboam is stuck with two tribes in the south where Jerusalem is, what's called Judah, and the rest of the Old Testament is the story of these two divided kingdoms struggling to get back to the place of glory. Was it really set into motion because an influential person asked counsel from the wrong people? Yeah. So we don't want to ask no one, and we don't want to ask everyone, and we don't want to ask the wrong people. So whom do we ask? How do we know who the right people are? Someone would say, well, maybe it's find the person who's on the same path that you're on, on the same trajectory, but 10 years ahead, or 15 years ahead, or 20 years ahead. That's not bad advice. That's pretty good. But sometimes it can be hard to find one person that actually fits your trajectory because, after all, we are all unique and special. And so we've chosen paths that are a little bit different. But in all seriousness, it's difficult to find one person that resembles that. That's true. Now, let me tell you what I've learned about wilderness survival. Why are you laughing? What I've learned about wilderness survival, I have learned from Joey Jimenez, who was a wilderness guide. But I've learned 
from his stories, that when you're lost in the woods, in the wilderness, you need to find at least two points that are fixed and known. Things that you know and things that aren't going to move on you. You're like, wait a minute, where was that dog I was fighting? You know, that doesn't work. Okay? <laughs> you gotta, they got to be fixed and they got to be known. Now, you can have two points and then you got to you use those two points to triangulate your own locations. Yeah, I got the lingo, Joey. I got this, bro. But actually, if you have more than two points, it's even better. Three fixed and known points, four fixed and known points. When we were in our 20s, someone introduced us to the concept of a, the constellation method of mentors. Instead of having one dominant voice, because that can turn into a weird controlling relationship, have a few different people that maybe you admire different things about what they, maybe, and it's not to say you don't admire their marriage or their, in all of them, but you might say, but this one in particular, I really kind of want to hear about marriage stuff. I really want to hear about career stuff. I really want to hear about investing stuff. I really want to hear about uh, how they handled um, um, uh, save, savings and finances. And I really want to hear about entrepreneurship. I want to hear about, and on and on it goes. <clears throat> and when you have a constellation of voices that are guiding you, then all of a sudden you can say, okay, that's good. I'm kind of listening to a few different people that, that, that through their counsel, I'm navigating this. I'm sorting this out. Like, okay, great. I have people in my life, we have people, both Holly and I, my wife and I do, have people that we say, let's really, let's talk to these folks again about, about parenting stuff. What are we missing in this season? I have, I have men in, in my life, a couple guys in my life that I think about who are ahead of me in ministry. I'm like, New Life Downtown, we're three years in. There's a lot that I don't know, and there's a lot that I don't even know that I don't know. Right? And so, so I'll say, Pastor Brady, tell me what's around the corner here. I don't know what... what or I'll say, um, uh, you know, Stephen Todd, tell me, you've, you've been, talk to me about this or that. Now, I have incredible parents. I go to my parents a lot as well. My dad, my mom are great, wise people. And, but I add to that, add to that constellation some other voices. There's uh, another gentleman in our congregation that I'll talk to a lot about uh, fatherhood and being a husband. And he'll kick me around when I'm not, he'll ask me hard questions. And there's other people that, that fill in some of those spots. That, that's a way for you to think about this. If I'm walking with the wise, do I have a constellation to navigate by? But the third thing, and maybe it seems sort of obvious, is that you must be willing to act in accordance with wisdom. It's not good enough to be willing to ask, and it's not good enough to ask. You also have to be willing to actually act. Matthew's Gospel of all the gospel writers, Matthew's the one who's writing to a Jewish audience in, in the most obvious way. And so Matthew has sections of his gospel that fit wisdom literature. It's Matthew who gives us a long sermon from Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of like a wisdom discourse. But it's also Matthew's gospel that opens with a story about three, well, we don't know that there were three, but by tradition, three wise men. Now, let me tell you about Herod. Herod was willing to ask. Herod also knew whom to ask. He asked the wise men. He said, what's going on with seeing the star? What's happening? But Herod was lacking the third and most critical piece. He was not actually willing to act in accordance with wisdom. Wisdom said, Herod, you better acknowledge that the true Messiah, the true king of Israel is here. And Herod said, no, I want to see him, but I want to see him so I can kill him. That's what I want to do. 
It's Matthew's gospel that tells us the story, the passage that was in our gospel reading this morning. And Jesus says, the foolish person hears and does not do. It's like building a house on sand. The wise person is the one who hears and does. It's like building a house on the rock. It's not enough to be willing to ask and even to ask the right people. You actually must be willing to act. Now, again, the caveat is we're cautioning against anyone who wants to control your life, okay? I, I know different ones of you have been in community settings where it was just a bit too heavy-handed, and all they wanted was to be the leader. And you're like, okay, that's a bit much. On the other hand, is there anyone in your life that can tell you no? Is there anyone who can say, no, you really shouldn't do that. I'm not your boss, I'm not, but you really shouldn't do that. Who can say no to you? One example from our life is um, how I decide what invitations to say yes to. I don't get a ton of invitations. It's not like they're pouring in or whatever, and neither do I desire to make a, a, a career out of traveling. I, I love local church pastoral work. But every once in a while, some invitations will come in, and the first person I go to is my wife. And, I say, and, and Holly and I had talked through each year how the grid changes for saying yes or no. Sometimes it was like, you know, there was a season in life where it was like, we're just excited to be invited, you know. Like, cool, man, I'll go share at that knitting club, you know. And then there's a voice here, you know what, let's think about the right kind of partnerships that help, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then once we've said, yeah, I think that's right, then I take it to Pastor Brady. Now, I don't have to do this. Brady's the senior pastor of New Life, and he's my boss in so much as the work that I do is for New Life. But he, I could take vacation time and do these trips. I could go on a quick weekend thing, go on my days off. I don't have to ask. But I believe there is wisdom in having counsel over you that can actually say no. And I know that Brady wrote a book called Addicted to Busy that he believes in sustainable pace. He's not chasing every opportunity. So I'll say, okay, Brady, I'm going to do this. What do you think about this? I asked Brady before I started my doctorate. I asked Brady before I pursued Anglican ordination. All of these decisions that, he, that need not have been submitted to him, but I did. And so when I started the doctorate thing in England, I, I had to go over, I knew in that first school year four times. Started it in the fall of 2013. So in the spring, the first six months of 2013, I needed to do three trips over. So he said, well, Glenn, why don't you just not take any other trips during those six months? At first, it was like, sure, that totally makes sense. You got it. And then a few invitations came in. I was like, but I really want to do that one too, you know. And sometimes it was difficult to, to actually follow it. But it's no good asking wise people and then not doing it. It's no good doing that. You've got to be willing to actually act in accordance with it. But here's the final piece of all. What does the wisdom of God actually look like? Because isn't it possible that you might have people that have been in church for a long time or been a Christian a long time or whatever, 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 and yet their wisdom doesn't sound like the wisdom of God at all? Can, I, can we be honest? That's true. Just because you've been in small groups for 30 years doesn't mean you know how to do community. So how do we know? What does the wisdom of God look like? Our New Testament reading this morning says that the wisdom of God looks like the cross of Jesus Christ. It said the wisdom of God is in Jesus. Jesus, the wisdom of God. Jesus, the power of God. Jesus, 
the one who gave of himself all the way even unto death. But the cross is not what the world counts as wisdom. It doesn't. I'm always leery of the advice sometimes we give people who are trying to do something that is extraordinarily sacrificial for the Lord or for the kingdom. Hey, my brother, just appreciate your passion, but I'm not sure it's wise to do all this. Now, what I want to say is, do, do you mean it's not wise by your grid of wisdom, or do you mean it's not the wisdom of God? Do you mean it doesn't make sense by the Americanized grid of profit and personal rights? Am I stepping on toes? Or do you mean it doesn't look like the self-giving, sacrificial love of Christ on the cross? Which is it? Because sometimes we say to people, oh, you re do you really want to move to, the, to Nepal? Do you really want to? I mean, why do that? I mean, is this wise? And what we're saying is, hey, hey, um, you're going to lose the chance to be financially successful. You're going to lose the opportunity to be powerful with cultural power. And the answer is, but does it look like the cross of Jesus Christ? Because even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And even the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. So the question for us this morning is, do you ever let the wisdom of the cross confront the wisdom of culture? Do, do you ever let the wisdom of the cross challenge it? Now, I'm not saying we don't run for-profit businesses. Of course we do. But there are times when you say, you know what, I need to do something that in a way <laughs> doesn't make sense. And I've got to do something that in a way seems kind of radical and I'm not sure that I will profit from this. And I'm not sure that I'll protect my rights in this. But I think I need to do this because it resembles the cross of Jesus Christ. And if all of your decisions look more like Benjamin Franklin than they do like Jesus, then friends, we've got a problem. If all of your decisions look like Steve Jobs and not like Jesus, we've got a problem. Because the cross of Jesus calls us into a wisdom that is baffling to the world. Paul says the, the cross was foolishness to the Greeks. You know why? Because the epitome of wisdom from the Greeks came from a guy named Plato, right? And Plato's Republic says the philosophers should be the kings. The ones who are the wisest should also be, have the most power. And Paul says, yeah, except when the wisest and most powerful person that ever walked the earth named Jesus, he emptied himself out in sacrificial self-giving love and was killed. Sometimes people say to me, Glenn, listen, I, I like all of this talk. It's all nice. But if I don't do this, I am going to, we're going to lose our position in the culture. And I say, right. And Jesus was crucified where? Outside the city. Sometimes the wisdom of God looks like a radical kind of love that can appear like you're losing it can appear like you're losing. And my caution to some of you that 
take in a heavy dose of news from one network is you're feeding yourself ammunition for a cultural war that looks nothing like the cross of Jesus Christ. It looks nothing like sacrificial self-giving love and looks everything like fighting with power. Fight power with power. And Jesus says you fight power with sacrifice. Well, let's fight this with it. And Jesus says you do that with the kind of love that baffles people. Ah. I don't know how this plays out for you. And I don't know how this plays out for your specific situation. I don't. And it would be foolish for me to try to tell you that. I don't know. But I do want to invite you to consider the ways that the wisdom of God confronts the wisdom of our age. Does the cross ever challenge your understanding of wisdom and power? If it doesn't, it doesn't look like the wisdom of God. For us as a church, one of the things that's been a powerful way to, a powerful test of this for us has been what we've done in the wake of our own difficulties. You know about the transition that New Life went through in late 2006, but you also probably know that when Pastor Brady took over, we had a tragedy on our campus in late 2007 with, uh, with a sh an active shooter and all of that. And then you know about the economic recession in 08, and you know that as any nonprofit, as a church, you're reeling from all of this stuff, and you're fighting to just get back to stability. And when we finally were at a better place and a healthier place and all this stuff, the last thing you, you typically want to do is, well, let's do something that is sacrificial for the sake of the other. That's usually the last move. Pretty much you want to just keep on self-preservation mode. Instead, the elders of New Life said, we've got to do something for the pain in our city. We've experienced pain as a church. Now we need to stand in the point of pain in our own city. And in conversations with several different agencies and, and, and ministries in town, we learned that there was a gap in what was available, that there were shelters for the homeless and there was low-cost apartments, but there was nothing in between, transitional housing that allowed people that were in transition with housing to be able to stay steady, acquire life skills, job skills, improve in those things, and be ready for low-cost housing or ready for whatever that next step was. And so a plan was set in motion through the Dream Centers of Colorado Springs, which New Life largely funds, was set to build an, purchase an apartment complex called Mary's Home that we would remodel, take over. And you guys, this month, Mary's Home took in its first three residents. It's an amazing thing. Three moms with their children. And they said to Brady the other day, they said, Brady, this, this is the nicest place we've ever lived. And it truly is beautiful. The kitchen, all of the furnishings. Another one said, Brady, this is, this is, I feel so safe here. One to three years transitional. Look, that is not the wisdom of this world that says, you better focus on all of this stuff, pulling stuff. Look, we did pay down a bunch of debt. We, we were wise about offloading assets and all that stuff. But <laughs> there was also this refusal to say, let's just go full-on inward mode here. But to say, what ways can we keep pushing outward to take risks that say the wisdom of God looks like the cross of Jesus Christ? It doesn't look like accumulation. It doesn't look like status and power and safety. The wisdom of God looks like the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus Christ. 
Friends, if we're going to live like this, then the only way is to keep drinking from the fountain of that love. That's why every Sunday we come to the Lord's table, because we're saying, Jesus, thank you that the wisdom of God is nothing like the world. Thank you that you didn't come and just sort of destroy us all. Thank you that you came and gave your life. And so as I drink this and take this and eat this, Lord, make me that kind of person. Make me wise in this way. Let me embody this kind of wisdom again and again and again. Amen?